Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. My guest today is the Pulitzer Prize winning author Hisham Matar. Born in New York City to Libyan parents, Hisham spent his childhood in Tripoli and Cairo and has lived most of his adult life in London. His debut novel, In the Country of Men, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the Guardian First Book Award and won numerous international prizes. His prize-winning memoir, The Return, published in 2016, received the 2017 Pulitzer Prize. It was one of the New York Times' top 10 books of the year. He is also the author of Anatomy of a Disappearance and A Month in Siena, which was named one of the best books of the year in 2019 by the Washington Post and the Evening Standard. My Friends is his latest. It's a story of exile and the intense friendships formed when people are displaced from their countries and their families. It's a story about home and what that means, language and what that means, dreams and what those mean, and all the things that unite these themes of exile and home and friendship and family and language is this sort of unbridgeable gap of not really knowing or understanding the heart of another person. And that gap is kind of where language often fails us. So My Friends is a first-person story taking place primarily in London, but primarily about Libya. So we're going to talk about all of this. Hisham Matar, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So I often love to begin, especially with authors that I haven't talked to before, with your upbringing and backstory and how your past informed the writer you became, especially as your themes and subject matter are so connected to your lived experience, being born outside of Libya and returning there for a time and then forced away. And I know your father, although not a writer by trade, was a lover of language and poetry. So I wondered if we could just start there with how your beginnings shaped your writing and when writing presented itself as your path? Gosh, what a question. (laughs) Quite a question. Uh, Very good question, but a very big question. I was going to say that you described the book very well, and uh, thank you for that. And it is about the gaps between what people feel and what they express and how they live. And I suppose... If I'm going to try to answer the question, uh, it would be that I've had a very, very mischievous autobiography. You know, I was I was born in New York City, and when I was three, my parents moved back to Tripoli, uh, the Libyan Tripoli, not the Lebanese Tripoli, so North Africa, living very close to the sea. And uh, when I was eight and a half, nine, they left under very dramatic circumstances for political reasons. And we went to Nairobi for a bit. And then eventually they settled in Cairo, in Egypt. And uh, when I was 15, I came to England to ostensibly just for a couple of years schooling. But I stayed and then did my university and was going to return, but didn't. And other couple of years, maybe I'll work for a bit, get some experience, then go home and remained. And it's the same for all of us. I don't think this question is only for people like me who have, you know, born in one place, grew up in another, live in yet another place. It means that I am, I am living in my skin, or trying to at least, and constantly having different versions of myself beside me. The version that would have stayed in New York if my parents never left, or stayed in Libya if they never left, or Nairobi, or Egypt, et cetera, et cetera. Or if instead of sending me to Britain for schooling, they would have sent me to Italy as they were thinking, or and so on and so forth. So the, the language, the most intimate things in my life, my home, my adopted country, adopted city, London, the language that I write and think in, live in, the English language, and everything that has been based on these things, people that I've grown close to and so on, seem on some level, accidental will be putting it too strongly, but they are a result really of a series of events. Again, I don't think it's that different from any one of us. We're all in that boat, but maybe with me, it, those those coincidences seem 
more elaborate or more pronounced. And I suppose that has invested me in thinking about some of the uh, the themes that have concerned my work right from the start. Questions of time, I think. How do you manage time? How within the present, the past resides and that that relationship is collaborative, I feel. I feel the present is authoring and altering the past as well as the other way around. But also questions of translation. I don't mean literal. I don't mean literally from one language or another, but mannerisms and modes of thinking. And then I think something that has been very central in my life and is seems to be also important in the life of my uh, protagonist Khalid in, in, in my novel, My Friends, is the sort of the universal nature of culture, that one of the things that this experience has motivated me towards is to think of culture really as all mine. <laughs> so whether it is, a, you know, when I pick up a Japanese book or a Russian book or Western music, Arabic music, uh, painting, it doesn't matter what it is, I really feel it's mine. I don't feel I am um, transgressing or visiting another culture. I enter these things with, I hope, with, with respect and modesty, but I really do feel that all this culture belongs to all of us, that on some essential level, we are really brothers and sisters across time and across race and nationality and all the various you know cultural affiliations. So I would say those are some of the things that have directly impacted the way I think about literature and the way that I think about writing, because I'm fed by so many different literatures and music and film and, and so on. Yeah. So I would say a promiscuous autobiography and a promiscuous <laughs> temperament or, or appetite for, for culture. Yeah. I love that word. Was English your mother tongue or what did you grow up speaking? No, I grew up in Arabic. Arabic was a very, um, I didn't just grow up speaking Arabic. I grew up with a very passionate love affair for the language, you know, and I was very good at it. I remember uh, as a kid at school in uh, in articulation class, which was a very complicated class and delved into the intricacies of Arabic grammar and, and uh, oftentimes felt like you were unraveling formulas. And I was so good, and I wasn't generally, I don't want to give the impression to you or to your listeners that I was a particularly good student. I wasn't, you know, I was sort of an average kid when it comes to grades and so on. But but this was the one class that I excelled at. I was so good at it that all my friends and all the cool people in the class wanted to sit very close to me. <laughs> so, um, so I had a I had a real passion for the language. And I wrote, you know, I wrote in it. I wrote these one-act plays to amuse my parents or whenever we would go on holiday, I would write a poem about the place. And it was uh, it was an unspoken sense that I had a facility for it, you know. But then when I was 11, I was taken out of Arabic school and put into an American school in Cairo. Reason being is that the, without going into too many details and boring your student, your um, your uh, listeners, is that the, the at that moment in Egypt, the national curriculum was going through a kind of crisis. There was a lack of funding and things weren't working out very well. And anybody who could afford to take their kid out of local schools and place them into an international school did so. So a lot of my mm-hmm. friends went to English language, French, and German. Those were the three sort of main choices then. And I went into an American school and was given six months to acquire a language that I really didn't know at all. I wasn't familiar with it. I listened to Bob Dylan and Bob Marley and the Bee Gees, you know, when I was a kid. But I, I, I didn't, I didn't know much beyond, you know, hamburger and hello, goodbye, and I love you. <laughs> Those were my words. So. So th- that's all I, you need, I, really. Yeah, that's all you need, exactly. <laughs> so I was, I was placed in a. Uh, I would, I was asked to come two hours before any other student. So it was a terrible time in the sense it was very intense workload. I would be at the school at seven in the morning, and from seven to nine, I would sit in a booth with uh, headphones on, 
listening to an audio book by, Virg- by uh, not Virginia Woolf, by, by Jane Austen. And I would have the book in front of me and I would follow. And of course I start daydreaming or, you know, and I lose my place and feel terribly anxious. I was swimming in this sea of unknown words. But I learned it in six months. I eventually learned it and uh, managed. And then, you know, with the years, a love affair developed with that language, you know, with my language now. I can so feel, you know, I just feel like I'm only, uh, I only speak English, but anytime I talk to people who speak multiple languages, it just feels like it gives you more keys on the keyboard to play and metaphor. And, you know, there's a lovely passage at the end of this novel talking about language and what English lacks by not having gender. I can just feel it all over this book that you get to play on a a lot more keys, I think, than are accessible to a lot of us that are just restricted to one language. So I think that's really fun. I was going to both agree and disagree with you because I think I also, I also think it's okay to speak one language and there are actually, I think maybe there are even advantages to monolinguism. (laughs) You know, here Mm -hmm. I am contradicting everything I've said to my students, encouraging them to learn another language, but (laughs) I do maybe the exile in me kind of, uh, idealizes, you know, what it would be like to be just, just in one language, you know, deep inside one language. But, but I, but, but I think much more than that. I, I actually do agree with you because I think the thing about moving out of your birth language or uh, your native language into another, what it really clarifies is, I think, a universal truth, which is that all languages are involved in translation, that all languages are also a mentality you know a language brings with it a mentality that encourages certain things and discourages others i notice for example when i speak in arabic i say slightly different things you know and that's partly because the language uh, excites those uh, ranges and in english there are other things that are excited by it so and and so i think with writing particularly for writers i would say learning or at least becoming acquainted with another language is really useful because writing to me seems to me to be involved in thinking about what translation is you know how do you translate a certain state you know the word love means of course a thousand different million different kinds of loves you know and yeah. even the loves that they mean they don't actually explain them accurately that love itself doesn't exist in that word it exists in the emotion and writing i think is invested in that uh, attempt to translate you know i just came across this and then we'll turn to the book but i just came across the dictionary of obscure sorrows which i guess has been out for a decade but i just came across it recently and it mm. and it's a dictionary that attempts to give language to all of these yeah obscure sorrows all of these amorphous emotions that we all have that we have a hard time giving language to and i was thinking about yeah. that book over and over as i was reading this novel we need to expand on that dictionary and isn't that what writing is attempting to do so yeah i i appreciate yeah. i mean that that would be that would be one very good definition of literature right obscure everything's yes <laughs> <laughs> Well, I did a poor job of introducing the book at the beginning. I did sort of a an overview job, but I didn't do a specific job. And and you'll do a much better job than I. And I know people haven't really had the opportunity to pick it up because it just came out. So maybe you can take us into my friends in this world with Haled and Hossam and Mustafa and kind of introduce us to them a little bit. Sure, I'll try. I don't know if I'll do a better job than you, but it's really, it's a book that opens with a parting. It opens with a farewell. I think the moment that you take somebody you love to the airport, to the train station, whatever, and the build-up to it, the unbearable sense of of parting ways with them, of not seeing them for a while, and then the moment you say goodbye to them, feels to me always the air changes somehow. Something happens to time then. The moment they leave and disappear behind the barrier, and and you, uh, you you're alone. It's always seemed a very interesting moment to me, as well as everything else. 
And I thought it would be fascinating to have a novel open then. So the novel opens at that moment. Khalid is taking his friend, Hussam, his most intimate friend. Hussam is getting on a, on a train at St. Pancras going to Paris, where he used to live, and then from there immigrating to San Francisco. And it very much feels like a, a final farewell, or at least that they won't see each other for a very long time. And Khalid is overcome by by this and decides instead of taking the bus home back to Shepherd's Bush in West London, he would walk. And he walks the distance with tangents, visiting places that were significant to him and to the friendship. And the whole book is told on that walk that would take sort of two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. And the, the walk becomes a, a vehicle for him to think back on this rich and complicated friendship, not only with Hussein, but with their third partner, uh, Mustafa, who's now back in, in Libya. So it very much feels to him that one friend has gone to the past, another one has gone into the future, and he remains a custodian of the present. But it's also a vehicle for thinking about London, this place that he has by now been inhabiting for three decades, and is this elusive home to him, the very hospitable yet elusive mobile home. So yeah, that that would be that would you know I would say that without going into that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, you did a much better job. <laughs> yeah, you had mentioned uh, the interest of the management of time earlier uh, mm-hmm. in our conversation, and how time is always present. The past is always present. The way that time was managed in this novel, I thought, was so interesting, and the structure of the novel. You know, it it seemed to diverge from the traditional Freytag's pyramid of inciting incident, escalating conflict, resolution, character being thwarted by things they want that they can't get. To me, this felt like the shape of it was informed very much by time. And had sort of a circular structure. I mean, of of course, the beginning comes back to the at the end where he now, you know, returns to his house and the the walk is over. But we've moved across time so much in those 300, 400 pages. And I was wondering if you gave thought to the shape of the novel, the structure of the novel and deviating from that, what feels to me like that very traditional, into a much more complicated, interesting structure? For me, structure is so essential that I feel that when I'm writing the book, when I wrote this book, I wanted the writing to be through the structure, you know, not sort of write it in some imaginary sort of linear fashion and then imposing a structure on it. I wanted the structure to be integral to to the story and integral also to my own sense of it you know my my lifelong preoccupation <laughs> time is very much a protagonist in this book and, and very much like london is i suppose as well as the characters because it seems to me that time is elusive it's both linear and circular it's both you know a single note and a polyphony of notes so so in this moment that you and i are speaking it m- might be at times more apparent than others to us that there are other moments here, other things that have happened to us in the past, and maybe other things that we anticipate in the future, you know. And that to me has always been fascinating. And I I trust or I have a confidence in those suggestions that occur, those, those temporal suggestions, you know. There might be, for example, a certain tone about your voice. Now, I've never met you before. I've never... I've never seen you before, yet there's a tone in your voice that might awaken in me something. That might it might remind me of some register, and that register would remind me of another friend because your voice does actually sound like this other friend of mine. And so, even though I am here talking with you, but my friend is somehow present in this moment, and I, and it's very it would be very hard to account for how she's present, right? And then those things to me seem just as real as the fact that you and I are talking. And in writing a novel like this about characters that are, you know, Khalid is very much in the present. He's moving quite fluently, you know, through the city. And he's moving quite fluently through the narrative, through his memories. 
through the free association of one thing after the other and and being quite invested in the suspenseful character of the narrative at the same time and he never loses his way he never loses his way in the narrative and he doesn't lose his way in london he knows exactly where he's going yet he's trapped he's contained within the memories he's contained within his exile and his inability to leave london or commit to it totally you know and those dramatic narrative issues you might call are mirrored and expressed through the temporal structure of the novel that's why i see the two things as being almost inseparable we should also say that the novel is told in the first person from Khaled's point of view and that affords i think that sort of reinforces a lot of the themes that you're talking about which is this feeling of isolation of not being able to fully understand the heart of another not being able to fully inhabit another person's mind that gap that we feel between us that we are always trying to bridge and first yeah. person does so much to solidify that feeling and there's some really elegant moves that you have to make at the end to give us access to places that Khalid is not that you're able to do through letters and emails and whatnot but talk about that choice of first person because i know that can feel for some writers very claustrophobic very limiting but it can be a real freedom for other writers and and i was wondering how that felt for you yes certainly no i i do feel um i find a freedom in the limits you know somewhere one of the ancient greeks had this idea that limits are places from which to travel mm. and i think the first person narrative definitely imposes certain limitations for a start, I mean, not only is everything we're getting, we're getting from one consciousness, but also all the other people that he's telling us about are rendered through him. They're interpreted, they're translated through him. So it is definitely, it imposes certain limitations. But I find it, what interests me is exactly those limitations, because then the imagination is called upon, you know, you're given what I would sometimes see as a loss of perspective, you know, what, say, for example, a third-person perspective would, would give me, I find in the frustrations of Khalid, you know, the fact that he cannot see, he cannot know what's happening right now to his friends when his two best friends are reunited in the most unlikely way on in a battlefield back in the Civil War in Libya, and he's stuck in London. The kind of jealousy and confusion that awakens in him, the way it, it it thins his own sense of himself. Uh, you know, he talks, he, he says that he's, he, you know, he's, he's walking ar around with a parallel self as though being observed by it, you know. Mm -hmm. So all of those things that are an outcome of, of the limitations of his, his perspective, I find, I find interesting. And also, I'm really fascinated by consciousness, you know, and I've sort of lost faith, you know, really on any kind of bird's eye view of the human state. You know, I really want the intimacy of a personal account. I'm very enlivened by it. And I'm, I'm even interested in its, in its ignorance, if you want to call it that, and the things it doesn't know and so on. So, so that's not to say that I've always known this to be a first person narrative. You know, I've tried different things. Uh, exactly because I was concerned about how do you tell a story like this just through one perspective. But um, once you, you know, once I surrender to it, then the possibilities start opening up, you know. It's mm -hmm. the curse, you know. The curse is the curse of options, you know, how, you know, you walk around. It's like with anything in the world. You walk around and you think as if you have in front of you a thousand different options. But actually, uh, the, the option here stems from the fabric of the story, which is what I wanted, you know. I never want to make a structure or something so as to to be either uh, deliberately inventive or otherwise. I want it to stem from the fabric of the way that I see things and hope that that would be unique. But it's all I have. The way I see things is really all I have. I thought it was interesting that you said you thought you started thinking about this novel in 2011 during the Arab Spring but really, you had been thinking about it for a much longer time that you discovered yeah. it and you wrote to yourself. And I, I was 
interested in hearing you talk about that sort of the it sounds like there were a lot of doors into this novel I always ask writers about the door into the novel and it sounds like you entered it from a, a bunch of different doors I did but always from the beginning you know from like the first paragraph I had that for I've had that for about 12 years you know the first paragraph and it's in my mind you know it's something that I walk around with and and for a long time, I had no idea who's talking. Why do they feel the way they do? Who's this friend that they're talking about? I had only the first name of the friend for a long time. Didn't know. I will, if I may, if I'll just, I'll just sort of recite the first sentence because I think it would. Yes, it would, I think we should do that. Yeah. It is, of course, impossible to be certain of what is contained in anyone's chest, least of all one's own or those we know well perhaps especially those we know best. But as I stand here on the upper level of King, King's Cross Station, from where I can monitor my old friend Hussam Zuwa walking across the concourse, I feel I'm seeing right into him, perceiving him more accurately than ever before, as though all along during the two decades that we have known one another. Our friendship has been a study, and now, ironically, just after we have bid one another farewell, his portrait is finally coming into view. And perhaps this is the natural way of things, that when a friendship comes to an inexplicable end, or wanes, or simply dissolves into nothing, the change we perceive at that moment seems inevitable. A destiny that was all along approaching, like someone walking toward us from a great distance, recognizable only when it is too late to turn away. This was one sentence. I had split it into two eventually, but this was one sentence. This was the sentence that I had with me for a long time. And then just the short one after it, no one has ever been a nearer neighbor to my heart. And and I wondered, well, who, who's this? Who's speaking? What's going on here? Why is this so? Why do I feel this so deeply? Why did, why do the, 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 the narrator seems to feel it so deeply. And and, uh, and so, yeah, the book emerged very, very, very slowly for me. And uh, and why it's, it's hard to account for it, except to say that there are, I think there are two reasons why it emerged in the way that it emerged. One to do with something that I feel with every book, which is that I feel when a, when a book presents itself or this makes it sound like it presents itself completely or suggests itself or I have a, it feels like a half-remembered dream and, but it feels uh, coherent in some strange way that it has its own character. It has its own uh, voice, its own appetites, the things that it wants and would refuse. You have a, an inkling of those in the beginning. And, um, and then Time needs to pass for it to sort of prepare you for it. I know that sounds a bit woolly or abstract. I don't mean it that way. But I, I do think that the book has to somehow work on me. You know, it has to uh, render me fit for its use. And that sometimes happens quickly and sometimes it takes time. But with this one, there was this other thing that I needed time to pass for, which is that it concerned events that were very contemporary, you know, namely the Arab Spring. These characters get embroiled in the events, as I was myself. And I couldn't have written a book like that, you know, 10 years ago, when, in the heat of the moment, as it were. No, And so I, I needed also time to pass for me to develop, to develop what I think of as a kind of passionate ambivalence that a novel needs from its writer. You, know, you need to be incredibly passionate about these things, but also you need the luxury or or the the space a slightly a slightly roomier space of ambivalence that you can't find in journalism that you can sustain contradictions doubts all those things that that you'd want to do in a novel We'll be back with more from Hisham Matar talking about my friends in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. 
A uh, reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you are enjoying the show, if you are enjoying these behind-the-scenes conversations of how these books get made, or if you've learned any tips that may have helped your own writing, you can visit us at patreon.com slash writers on writing. Up there, we share even more advice from some of our guests, as well as writing tips and tricks. It's a great way for us to keep in touch. We also started an affiliate page on bookshop.org to support independent bookstores and support the show. You can buy a copy of Hisham's novel there by visiting our page at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Hisham Matar talking about my friends. It's interesting, I think, to think about the, I always talk about the the world the books are born into. And the world that this book is being born into is a different world than it was written in, with so many changes happening in the Middle East. Not Libya yeah. directly right now, but, you know, echoes of history, it, it repeats itself. Yeah. And so I do think it's interesting that you needed the time after 2011 to digest events and then now that the book is coming out, it's coming out into the, to such a tumultuous time. It might be too early for you to comment on how that is going to feel as it's happening, because it's it's a little bit early right now. But I don't know if you have thoughts about that. No, it's it's a really good question, and I feel I feel not only do I not know, I feel I probably can't know. I have maybe a sort of convenient myth that I've built around my practice, which is that I feel that the book is the protagonist in the whole endeavor and that I am sort of a, just a, I'm just a servant. You know, I just sort of make sure that I have the things that it needs, that I um, make myself available to it, that when I'm writing it, I sort of take good care. I sleep well, <laughs> that I, you know, things like that. And then when it's, when it comes to this moment of it being published, I really feel I'm elsewhere somehow. I'm not really, of use. I'm not entirely certain. I mean, notwithstanding the fact that I'm really enjoying our conversation and rare occurrences like this when you're speaking to somebody who's thoughtful and has really read your book closely is it ha- has its own delight and, and, and pleasure. But notwithstanding that, I always feel a little bit sort of in the way or or, or superfluous, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well really the book now is 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 making its own it will make its own way in the way it will make it and there's not much i can do about it i really do feel that <laughs> and um mm. i'm doubtful about any uh, how effective i can be you know beyond this point i'm, I'm really I'm, uh, ambivalent about that um yeah. i know that's not your question your question is more about how the book will be received and but also it's sort of a blind spot i can't quite see I, and know, probably a good thing, right? <laughs> Maybe a good thing. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I mean, you know, you know, I really, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to say this without. I hope it doesn't sound, uh, you know, whatever. But, uh, but I really wrote this book from a place of deep passion. You know, I felt very strongly for these characters, for the things that they were going through, for the ideas that it's concerned with questions of like you said in your introduction you know questions of what it means to belong what is the function of a place a function of a language a function of intimacies and and you know i felt those things were really close to me at the same time i wrote it with a deep desire that i wanted to write a book that was both epic in scale but that actually dealt with the intimate human event that mm. it wasn't concerned with the political drama on the grand stage it was concerned with the human heart and and i wanted it to be suspenseful and rich and reciprocate offer back give a bit of the great many pleasures that i took from books that kept me up on the edge of my seat but that didn't do that in a way that compromised on deep philosophical ruminations and reflections and thinking about this incredible event you know of, of being a human being in, a, in in time and space you know it's uh, uh, and so I didn't want it to shy from taking 
you know, a couple of pages or more thinking over an idea. But also I didn't want to shy from exciting in you the desire to, you know, to see what happens. Because I also, in writing it, I wanted to know what happens. <laughs> so I was also sort of uh, enlivened by that. So, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciated so much about it, and referencing back to the question of the world the book is being born into, is that I hear a lot of writers talk about what is what is the meaning of writing right now when there's so much grief? You know, how do you write in the face of grief? And one of the characters in the book really exemplifies this, right? He was a writer. He stopped writing. And you've addressed this so eloquently in talks I've heard you give about the importance of writing, especially in times of grief, the importance of, of, of having things to say. And and I want to stress to people who haven't yet read this, it's it really is in almost no way political book. I mean, it takes a stand, I suppose, but but it's it's an easy thing to take a stand on in this book. It's really much more about the human heart and the universal human experience and all the things we've been talking about. So it's it's not political in any way. But I wonder if there are things you can say about that, about writing in times of despair and how Hussam became sort of a vehicle for you maybe to explore that question. Yeah, that's a big that's a big question. I mean I suppose when you when you ask it, the things that come to mind is which are the things I'm going to not trust. <laughs> I mean, I do feel that reading has always been reading and writing has always been a minority sport. There's never been an age when people didn't worry about it, you know, worry about it vanishing. But I think we should also be consoled by its resilience, you know. It's uh, and I think its resilience tells us something about what it does and notwithstanding the fact that our culture treats it oftentimes, not always, but I would say most of the times, treats it as a sort of extra activity. It It is so essential, I think, to our conception of what it is to be a human being. It's so central to that. Particularly, I think, in moments when we are being encouraged for one reason or another to close that question to assume that we actually do know what it means to be a human being. We know what is wanted from us. We know what we should give and what we should hold back. It's all decided. It's exactly at those moments. And those moments can occur under uh, political strain, but they also can occur under sort of cultural tyranny as well, right? I mean, mm. we, don't, we take it for granted sometimes that we function no matter where you are in the world. We, f we function under a lot of assumptions, and those assumptions can narrow you know, much of our uh, capability of thinking and feeling. And, uh, and literature really comes in at that space. It blows that whole project up because it's constantly interested in men and women who are running against their own hearts. It's constantly interested in the unsayable and the unsaid. And so I think its function is incredibly central for me. I'm not, uh, <laughs> I'm not for a minute coy about the importance of literature. I really do think it is one of the central columns of what any sort of vision of human civilization should be. It's really quite central. And, and you know, these things aren't abstract in my life. You know, I've lived in, in time when books were banned when writers were thrown in prison and now we're having you know a version of that again and so to me it's these aren't uh, academic questions they're quite central and also i think the other thing that is incredibly radical about writing and reading and i think anybody I only speak, I don't speak, I'm not speaking, I don't want to give the impression that I sort of, I'm sitting on some kind of, I know, you know, I don't know, but I speak from my, from my experience and my experience as a writer, moments of great um, sort of lack of vigor or, or curiosity or the cure is always reading because it's in reading that you discover what is happening to you. That in other words, the defense for literature isn't some general sort of project. It's the defense is found in our hearts. It's found in our own experience. When you read and you suddenly find yourself, you're not reading a Japanese book, but you are Japanese at that moment. 
you know yeah and you are everything that you are not you know you are you're Russian if you're a man you're a woman if you're straight you're gay or whatever it is what are whatever the demarcations are but I have found myself literature has trained me you know it has really worked and shaped my mind and my heart in ways that I don't I know would have not been possible any other way you know nothing has made me uh, feel what an aristocrat feels or what a beggar feels you know it's it's just uh, and these things can be there's a risk in putting them aside as some kind of experiments of virtual reality or whatever you know they're not that they are real work of the human heart you know that if 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 our chances of being human are increased which i think they are increased by our powers of of sympathy and empathy and in the imagination then this is really it's not the thing that is going to solve all the problems but it's got to be a central column in in that project yeah so i think any doubts in assail us uh, about writing or reading or what's the point of books or libraries or so on needs to to be mindful of this i will say not to fawn all over your novel here too much but i will say that i had more of those human-like experiences in this book than I've had in a long time. And I could not be more different from these characters biographically than I could imagine anyone. And so you bridged the gap, whatever that uh, ineffable gap that we've been talking about is so effectively over and over. And I know, you know, that's every reader brings their own lens to the text and has their own thoughts and experiences and whatever but whatever you managed to do here did all accomplished all of those things that that uh, you're talking about today i don't quite know how that is done but it, well, thank it, you so much that, that means that means the world to me thank you i will try i will i will put my hand on my heart and keep your words there and try to believe them <laughs> i will <laughs> well please do please do and it answers the question a little bit i think about what fiction can do that nonfiction can't and i know that well mm. i mean nonfiction can and i know you've written in the realm of memoir a few times um and certainly a number of articles that do a different job i think than this does but i was wondering if you ever grappled with that if you ever thought I will find a, a human story amongst this morass to tell this tale through in a, a nonfiction way or if you think about what fiction does that your that your memoirs didn't do I mean I feel I've always felt that my natural uh, mode is the novel you know I do I, I felt when I wrote uh, the return and a month in Siena I wrote them them in the ways that I would imagine a novelist would write them, you know, it was or they came that way and uh, but they were written obviously f f with different motives and the motives I think are are maybe a way to answer your question because with the return I felt I had all of this um, I don't know what to call it, a kind of weight of the past and um and I felt that I was drowning. You know, I felt that uh, history had got me by the neck and was pushing me underwater. And um, and so I wanted to create a state of emergence, you know, a state where the loud and the subtle can come up to the surface, you know, the, the, the political events and, you know, the disappearance of my father, who was a political dissident, and, and my lifelong search for him, and various other things that have happened that are very dramatic sort of things that once you say them the room falls quiet and uh and it's an awful silence because nobody really knows what to do with this stuff and uh, including not least of all yourself uh, uh, but at the same time the other things that these experiences at least for long stretches of my life have made impossible you know how to talk about a painting paintings are very important to me and there's no time to talk about it. How do you talk about a painting when your father is in prison or when your friend is being tortured? Or you know, how do you how do you do that? How do you talk about the sensuousness of love or a good meal? Or I mean, you know, 
but there are various other things. They just become complicated. And so, so I wanted to write a book that somehow would blow the top on that and I could and create a state of emergence where all these things can come up to the surface. And, and maybe in some way, I was hoping that I would somehow free myself from it all, you know, and, uh, and rather than thinking of my life as material, which, you know, I wasn't thinking that, that way, but I remember when I published my first novel and second novel, they were well received. I could sense that some people thought, you know, this is a writer who can write, but also has got a lot of material as if, and, and I thought, you know, to hell with that. <laughs> you know, right. I'm going to, I'm going to just, I'm, I'm just going to put all the material out there, be done with it so I can get on and do something else, you know, and, and, uh, and a month in Siena was that something else. I felt a kind of freedom and I've always loved books like that. I've always loved books about the traveler who, stops somewhere and thinks about the world through objects and landscape and accidental encounters and i've just i've always admired those essays and books like that and 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 wanted to try one you know so but really all those were divergent paths from and back into the novel because the return taught me a lot about writing because it it managed time in a way that was very interesting it displayed to me a lot of my passions, you know. You know, you find your passions by writing. You don't always know them, at least not in my case. And and I've learned a lot about my passions, the things that I feel strongly about and enjoy, and where the moments of ease and the moments of struggle and all that. I've learned those from all of my books. So I, f- I feel all of these have been sort of leading me to every all of them lead to the next book you know and um and my friends is is very much supported and made possible by those books in the creative sense i mean this is probably a banal question but i'm always curious what a writer's office looks like and by office i'm being really fluid here i mean your office might be your head or your computer or something yeah. but but the organization of the material because there's a lot of research I know that went into this, whether it was research or it was just known because you lived it. And then those places where you jump off into the the fictive world with your characters. And and there's a big cast of characters. We haven't talked about all of them, but there's, you know, there's a decent sized cast. And so keeping all of those people straight, keeping the time straight, keeping the places straight, keeping the, the you know, historical events accurate. How did you go about organizing all of that in your own mind or in your own, in your own computer I, I have a slightly unusual situation because we live on one side of the street in West London and I have a, a space on the opposite side of the street so I get up in the morning I oh. shower and then I cross the road that's my commute I cross the road to my work and it's a it's a small apartment where I work it's where my books are nothing else happens here and I somehow I need that. It's um, something that works for me, this having a separate space. And I have three different tables. I have a table where I do first drafts, and those are usually by hand. And then I, I I have a table where you know I transcribe them on the computer and and work that way. And then I have another table that is just really for other things that have nothing to do with the book, you know, the essay I'm writing or or drawings, I like to draw, whatever, whatever, you know, so just other things, books I'm reading, big art books that need a table to sit on. And with this book, I, uh, in the years that I was thinking about it, before I sat down to write it, I kept a, a notes, and I had a, a lot of pages of notes. And But they were, they were sort of, <clears throat> some were like slides, you know, like a, a snapshot of something, it would be a, an image, a color, uh, the way somebody's sitting next to someone else. And oftentimes I don't know who, I might know one of the characters, but I don't know who else they're sitting with. Um, some of them would be dialogue, somebody speaking. And again, I didn't always know what they were saying. Or, or like, I didn't know who they were saying it to or who was speaking. Anyway, I had a lot of pages, about 150 pages of these. There were a kind of uh, sketchbook for the novel. And I had that first page uh, from which I read to you a bit. And that's all, really. And I had a I had a deep feeling, if I could put it that way, a deep feeling for them. 
and I then and then I would sort of dip in and out of it as I was writing other books, you know, in these ten years or so. And then when I set off writing it, I would stop and start several times. And what I would do, and this is a throwback from my from my training. I trained as an architect and I worked as an architect for the first six, seven years of, of my working life. So I would print everything I've got and put it up across the walls and just see the space that everything occupies visually almost and be able to make notes on them and, and maybe summarize some of them in just three, four words just to help me think about it. Because the book had a certain relationship to time that was not straightforward. At the same time, I wanted it to seem straightforward. I wanted it to land you know, on, on, on the reader's eye very naturally for it to seem the most natural thing. Because as I mentioned earlier, to me, it does seem the most natural thing to be in one moment thinking about another and thinking about yet another in the future. But that needed, I needed to figure out the rhythm of that, you know, and uh, and the possibilities of it and try to test those possibilities. So sometimes for a long time, I wondered whether he encounters anyone on this walk. I knew it was a nocturnal walk, but is it a solitary walk? And I would put him in situations where he would meet somebody, bumps into somebody he knows, or maybe just has a conversation with someone he doesn't know in the street or in a cafe. And, and I would test those things out. They didn't work in the end. They did but they did clarify to me that it is very much a solitary walk within a busy terrain, busy in sense of the memories that it evokes, but also you know, it's a city, a major city. It'd be nice to have access to all those places that you can go to the places he's visiting or to his fictive apartment or yeah. take that yeah. walk or go to the square whenever you need to. Very much, very much. And it, it actually strangely deepened my relationship to the city you know so now when i pass a place that is is mentioned or that I, at least i imagined him walking through it feels it feels that another layer of experience has has fallen on it you know so mm. i'm very i'm very surprised by that um it's it nice to be able to create alternate worlds that you can also live in even after the book is over yeah, or or live beside somehow. I do I do feel it really all happened to someone else that I had closely observed or was privy to in some way. It does feel that way. Well, I know uh, I know we're drawing down on our time. I know you teach as well at, at Barnard. Is there writing advice that you'd like to leave us with that you give to your students or things that have sustained you over the the many books? Yes, um, I rarely teach creative writing. I teach mainly literature, and I suppose my advice is my advice is reading. Really, I do think reading is is has been the thing that has taught me the most. On that point, because I think we American, mostly an American audience here, are so steeped in the American canon, and you introduced me through this novel to a lot of writers outside of that, and I thought. You know, maybe you could share with us a few people that we might not know that we should take a look at. Um, I don't know. I mean, from my experience with my students, they they do read, you know, widely. But I suppose a lot of books that get missed are books in translation. I mean, it's just America and Britain both are, uh, you know, have wonderful sort of publishing industries that have... I would say what, if they have a weakness, this would be it, you know, that they're, they don't translate as much. It's changing. There are lots of wonderful publishers in America, New Directions is one example of fabulous publisher who really knows how to publish in translation. Here, there are several, there's Fitzgeraldo, for example, and Pushkin. So there are more books available in translation. So I would urge on that. But now, off the cuff, if I have to think, I mean, maybe I'll just mention something I'm reading now. I'm reading Natalia Ginsberg, the Italian novelist, whom I think very highly of. She's, I think she's, she's one of the finest Italian novelists of the 20th century, and I love her work. So, so I would urge your 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 listeners to pick her work up. It's very very well translated. 
the uh, what is it called? The library of I'm gonna get it wrong now. What is it called? The library of something that NYU is doing together with some other organization. The library of Arabic literature. It's called. Mm. Um, they translate very well. Um, mostly, <laughs> mostly very well. And so there are just some wonderful uh, books. There's a book that I mention in, in my friends is called The Epistle of Forgiveness by Abu Ala al-Ma'arri. Yeah. And uh, it's not an easy book, but it's a fascinating book. Another book I mention in uh, my friends is uh, Leg Over Leg by um, Ahmed Faris al-Shadiyaq, also translated by this uh, wonderful literature, of Arabic, uh, Library of Arabic Literature. And again, not an easy book. It's four volumes, and it's it's very funny too. But it's a wonderful book, and it's really considered as one of the first novels in modern Arabic literature, published in eighteen fifty-five. So who else? I mean, I'm just thinking of people that I mentioned in the book. I mean, Joseph Conrad went out of favor for a while. People now are reading him, but they miss his his less known works. You know, I, I quite like those. You know, I love the Secret Share, for example, and and the Return. He has a book called it's a sort of one of those long short stories that Joseph Conrad wrote. And similarly, Robert Louis Stevenson really hangs heavily over this book. And and again, his lesser known works, I like Kidnapped, which I think is just fantastic. Mm. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote really well about exile and immigration. He was very conscious of people who have to leave their home you know there's a scene in the kidnapped when when he's on a ship and the ship is coming close i think to the the isle of mull in scotland or a place like that and they can see a ship close to land and they're not sure what kind of ship it is whether it's an enemy ship or they don't know and there's a tension around that and then they they can hear sounds of people singing and then it doesn't sound like singing, it sounds like crying. And it's people who are immigrating to America and saying goodbye to their to their relatives. And he captures that, that the book Kidnapped is not about the subject at all. It's just a moment in it, but it's so moving and it's so powerful. Um, and then, of course, his other book about this is called The Amateur Immigrant, which is a wonderful book. Uh, he's got such a good eye for observing uh, people and he goes on that ship escaping his family's demands his family was a very successful lighthouse builders you know they were just the best lighthouse builders in Scotland and wanted him to join the family firm and he didn't want to be a lighthouse builder anyway he got on a boat and went to America and uh, wrote of course these wonderful another book about California and so on but on the way he writes his book or there's a book written about that experience called The Amateur immigrant and he imagines when he gets on the boat that these people you know immigrants are young heroic you know strong healthy ambitious optimistic people and yet he finds you know a ship filled with broken men you know people who have lost hope who are weak and tired and and he has such a facility of picking up sounds and the way people speak and their stories it's a wonderful book Mm. Um, wonderful, wonderful book. So, so those are writers, you know, that are not known. Faris, Ahmed Faris Shadiak, or might not be as well known uh, to American readers. And Abu Ala Al Ma'arri, Abu Ala Al Ma'arri is a bit like it's like a bit me, like saying to you, um, Shakespeare. <laughs> you know, he's sort of you know, the fact the fact that all of my writer friends haven't read Abu Ala Al Ma'arri is kind of it's kind horrifying. Of, it's kind of, yeah. But also, you know, um, maybe it's my taste. I mean, my favorite book of all time, I have to say, is is Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time. And I think I know about three people who have read the whole thing. <laughs> and I know a lot of readers. <laughs> yes. Um, so, so maybe it's me and not uh, yeah, the culture. But, but also, the you know, these you know, Natalia Ginsberg and Joseph Conrad and Robert Louis Stevenson, I think those are, yeah. Yeah, we should say that this novel is such a, a love language to books, too. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. Oh, I could talk to you all day. I wish we could talk all day. Hisham Matar, this was, this was really just lovely.
Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you and I hope that we will speak again and, and maybe meet in person. I would love that. Thank you so much. My pleasure. That was Hisham Matar. The book is My Friends. It's out and available now, published by Random House. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com, two R's and Marie. And you can always visit the show's website, writersonwriting.com. There's an archive of all of our past shows up there. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher, however you consume your podcasts. You can visit us at our bookshop.org page to check out a copy of Hisham's book, as well as books from all of our past guests, bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him on Spotify under Just My Type for a lot of typewriter music, or visit him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.